0: Is there any grudge that you have against Mr. Hiss over anything that he has done to you? That single question slipped the cord on all the pent emotion that had been built up through the day. Until that moment, I had been testifying as a public witness, trying to answer questions carefully and briefly. Now I ceased to answer in that way. As I struggled to control my feeling, slowly and deliberately, I heard myself saying, rather than said, The story has spread that in testifying against Mr. Hiss, I am working out some old grudge, or motives, or revenge, or hatred. I do not hate Mr. Hiss. We were close friends, but we are caught in a tragedy of history. Mr. Hiss represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting, and I am fighting. I have testified against him with remorse and pity, but in a moment of history in which this nation now stands, so help me God, I could not do otherwise. In the completely silent room, I fought to control my voice.
1: Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where we basically record our friendship in real time, talking about books that are too big to otherwise be read without the motivational factor of accountability before us and at least three to four of our friends who we definitely know tune in. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Um... The book we read this time is Whitaker Chambers' Witness, uh, published in 1951. Uh, it's part of what I'm calling our Russian trilogy. We just did Tom Stoppard's big play cycle, The Coast of Utopia, last time, about 19th century, you know, Russian intellect intelligentsia, and then uh, we have a, you know, I'll save what we're doing next for the end of the podcast, even though we've already announced it. Um, so this was a pretty big, weird read. <laughs> I think we're going to talk about a lot of things that aren't the book as a way to try and contextualize how we both reacted to the book. Um, but it is definitely a book worth talking about, and as always, a book worth reading, um, even if you need you know one of your best friends to help to help get you through it. <laughs> so yeah, do you want to pick up what the book's about, Bill, and just kind of ground us before we maybe deviate a little bit?
0: Yeah, so the book is, uh, again, it's Witness by Whitaker Chambers. Uh, Whitaker Chambers lived from 1901 to 1961. The book was published, I think, in actually 52, according to my copy. Oh, I think you're certainly right. the you're early right. 50s. Um, it's very important that we get that exact year down. Joel, otherwise, where are we going to go? I just don't know
1: how I would have <laughs> continued if I had found that mistake later. It's true.
0: <laughs> anyway, the, the 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 book has an important place in kind of the, particularly the conservative canon, but it was a New York Times bestseller when it came out in 52, even though it's, you know, seven or 800 pages long, depending on which copy you have. I think it's kind of fallen out. I don't think people are as familiar with it now, uh, but it certainly was a big deal when it came out. Uh, in general, it is a... Sort of an autobiography or a memoir of Whitaker Chambers, who was a uh, a Soviet spy. I mean, he was an American uh, member of the underground Communist Party who started working to ensure that certain documents and such were passed from sources in the United States federal government who were also communists to the Soviet Union. Or at least so he says. One thing that's hard about talking about this book is literally everything in it has been disputed by somebody or other. <laughs> I think the dust may settle at some point. My understanding now is that most people think that Chambers was at least mostly telling the truth. But there's a lot of dispute about that. And I'm just going to put a pin on this right now and say, uh, this is the only book I've read about this stuff. So while I have a sort of vague osmosis you know, about like the Hiss trials and about Whittaker Chambers... Uh, mostly what I know about it is this book. Is that also kind of where you are, Joel? I, I mean, to so, be
1: right? honest, I barely read this book, you know, like in some sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I mean, we. I think we both, we exchanged a few. I, I exchanged at least one article. Um, and I, I've heard about this book before, but it's definitely all through, like you said, sort of um, the osmosis of literary criticism, not any of the other actual books that are about the Hiss trial, um, including a really important one in like 1978, I think. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, there was a bit of resurgence with the book. Like, I have the 50th anniversary edition, which came out in 2002. And there was some resurgence around the time about, you know, talking about Whitaker Chambers and so forth. But, yeah, it's definitely the first time I've encountered the full narrative. And I did not fact-check anything. Because I, I think what's also important to say is, which we can, you know, I'm not sure we'll actually get to this point, is that even people who don't dispute the facts of Whitaker Chambers, they dispute the importance of it, right? So, like, it's one of those... Yeah. It's definitely one of those cultural artifacts where you might even agree about every single, you know, line by line item, but you disagree about the meaning or the importance of what is being told, um, which I think is way trickier. And I'm sure we'll we'll get into some of that in a little bit. Um, But is there anything else you want to add about the book before we maybe?
0: Yeah, I was just going to do like a quick summary of what he actually does in it. Um, This is. You know, another one of those books, I mean, it is a big read. That is, of course, the purpose of the podcast. It's it's so big. So as always, (laughs) as always, we're going to do like a a quick outline and then we're going to just give context for whenever we talk about anything particular. But uh, the the first chapter of the book skips ahead, actually, in the narrative. Uh, It's about the moment he broke with the Communist Party and sort of fled off into the wilderness to try to avoid being... Uh, hunted down and killed, which he thought was a very real possibility, with, again, at least from this text, some, some reason to think that that Damn. was not unreasonable. Um, and he talks about sort of why he, he made this sort of philosophical break with, with communism, and then he goes back and tells his biography. Uh, he grew up in a middle-class family in uh, on Long Island, um, which we'll get into in more detail later, but quickly degenerated into some sort of, like, I don't even know, New England gothic novel oh with gosh. a lot of... yeah. Uh, honest tragedy like it's hard not to laugh a little bit because there's just so many terrible things but um it, it ends up being really quite a bit uh you know his grandmother becomes i think schizophrenic and is living in the house wandering around with a knife sometimes you know his mother is also neurotic his father is just a deeply strange person and his brother ultimately kills himself out of a sense of just sort of existential despair like right. it's really a, a no, pretty it's, terrible yeah. upbringing um he joins the Communist Party first as an active, you know, above-ground member of just like the political Communist Party, but then goes underground, uh, works under a couple of different Russian uh, handlers, I guess you'd say. And so he describes the way this, this whole experience worked, and it was mostly about exchanging briefcases, I think he says at one point. Um, but he included a number of contacts he made, most importantly with Alger Hiss, who at the time was some minor official in the government, but ended up being a pretty big deal. You know, wrote big chunks of the UN Charter, uh, was an assistant to Roosevelt during the Yalta Conference. You know, a pretty big deal in the federal government uh, later on. The rest of the book is about the what is what he calls the Hiss case, or is often called the Hiss or Hiss Chambers trial, which is a series of hearings and trials about when Whittaker Chambers came forward and said Alger Hiss first. That Alger Hiss was a communist, and then much later on, saying yes, Alger Hiss in fact did engage in espionage for the Soviet government. Um, there's a series of about four major government things. There were a series of hearings in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, Richard Nixon is actually a big player in this book, which we'll talk about later. And then there were three actual court trials. I think for he's a little squirrely on the timeline, so I may not have this quite right. But I think first there was a, a libel case filed by Hiss against chambers for having publicly called him a communist and i believe at the conclusion of that there were then two criminal trials against Hiss for perjury i think because the statute of limitations had basically run on espionage it's not clear from this book why he was not yeah i
1: read that somewhere else too
0: espionage but i think that's mostly it is that because Hiss during the house on american activities committee um hearings had denied having met Whitaker Chambers and then amended it in certain ways uh, and at least as presented in this book clearly had lied about you know mostly details that aren't that interesting whether or not he had a car at a certain time and so on Uh, he was tried for perjury the first trial ended in a hung jury and then later that year they did it again and convicted him he served I think he was sentenced to like 10 years in prison and actually served three and a half which is not unusual Uh, and actually had a long and successful career after this Alger Hiss did he was readmitted to the Massachusetts bar some years later and for what it's worth, he maintained his innocence both of perjury and of being a communist and of being a spy until he died in 96. Chambers predeceased him by a long time. Um, he died in 61.
1: Yeah, from like his seventh heart attack.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Which totally is not w- funny, sorry. But it was, it's yeah, it's, no, it was- it's definitely part of his life because he does work himself to death, which we can get into. But I just, I remember reading. I was like, your seventh heart attack? I'm like, no wonder, like, this book is sort of drenched in his his kind of morbid self-obsession with death and like he's going to die. And I mean, yeah, he was clearly onto something. I guess if you have, you know, two yeah. or three heart attacks, maybe it's not as big of a surprise, but anyway, sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so the book is a whole, and we'll, we'll talk in more detail, but it's part memoir, part sort of a very specific defense against, because the, my understanding of the Hiss trial, it was, it was very pop, uh, publicized and a lot of people really came out saying that Whitaker Chambers was making everything up. And so there was a lot of speculation as to why this this lunatic basically had come out and tried to smear this very famous and very well-respected political figure. Uh, and so part of it is a defense. He's, he tries to, you, you get a lot of quotations from trial transcripts where he tries to say, look, this is exactly where he lied here or squirreled away from this here. And it's also kind of a broad theological or philosophical or political treatise about how life and society works. Um, and the three don't always live very uh, comfortably next to each other. No. <laughs> there are definitely some pretty serious jumps between one to the next that I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail. Uh, but Chambers was was it was a major figure in sort of conservative thought I think mostly after he died uh, yeah Reagan gave him posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom and I think 84 uh, for his testimony and for this book I mean more or less explicitly he was a friend of William F Buckley jr. who founded National Review and indeed towards the end of his life he actually worked for National Review uh, he had an editorship position of some kind before eventually I think he was just too gloomy and also was very sick and so he had to leave um, that's more or less what happened I think. <laughs> um, my, my edition of this book has, I think, four separate forewords by other people, uh, including one by William F. Buckley Jr. and some other mostly conservative uh, writers, and they are all just incredibly hagiographic about Chambers, um, so right, wrong, or indifferent, this guy is very important to a particular subset of uh, American politics. I don't know if he's as important now, but certainly 30, 40 years ago, he was still, I think, held up as a, as a very important figure in uh, conservative politics and political thought. does that sound right?
1: Yeah no, I think that's exactly right And actually I do think if you're okay I think it's probably a good um, place to depart and to maybe because you know you and I talked about that this book comes wrapped in a certain um, you know certain conservative packaging right like every quote on the back of my book I have quotes from like Ronald Reagan, Robert <coughs> Novak, George will, there's one from the Washington Post, surprisingly, um, but everything else is pretty much straight by the book, kind of national review conservatism, if you can call it yeah. that. Um, but but interestingly enough, I, I've heard about this book for years, but I picked it up because I read a review of it um, in Book Forum, which is one of the better kind of book review lit mags out there. Uh, and I was surprised because you know, book forum is uh, as objective as possible when getting reviewers, I think, but it definitely goes left. I mean, I, it definitely is not a, a magazine I associate with anything on the right. And to see a review that basically said, hey, this book is kind of pompous at times, but a masterpiece and Whit- Whitaker Chambers was an honorable man. I, I was like, oh, that seems compelling to me. And so, um, I, I, so I think basically there's two ways in which I feel like we almost have to contextualize what you and I are going to say. And one is that um, this book so clearly takes place in a different era when maybe ideas about the grand design of society or the end of history being a literal thing you're fighting for weren't kind of ridiculous. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have to almost account for that with our own context, which I thought maybe we, we you and I could go into, which is like, where have we come from politically, even just maybe our own families or backgrounds or whatever? And um kind of risked <laughs> you know, risked the vulnerability of saying, like, where do we feel like we are right now? Because I know I said this to you in the in the preamble to this podcast, but I feel like I myself am a fellow traveler with, like, various probably conflicting political ideologies. I'm basically your average American schmo who who reads stuff and says, that guy might be right, is what I feel like. I'm trying not to be that, of course. And the book and nothing else, this book demands that you should take a stand concretely for and against um, as a way to announce not only, you know, your courage and so forth, but that you've thought things through seriously. And maybe he's wrong about some of the the dogmatism he brings to every single belief he has, right? Because there's not one belief he holds <laughs> half-heartedly. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and so I, I don't know that he's right about that, but it's, I still felt I still felt challenged, you know, about the idea of like we're in a highly politically charged moment, and I, I find things, you know, I, I find I have stronger opinions than I used to, and yet I, I still feel like most people shirk from that conflict right that basic conflict of what should we do to you know to guide society anyway so if you if you want to i mean i don't want to throw you under the bus first but i don't know if you want to talk about where you've come from or where you feel like you are now and how that maybe impacts coming to this book um and then i can, I can do the same
0: yeah so i'll try to do it relatively quickly uh, i think the important thing to note is I, I'm, I'm sort of in a, I wouldn't call it a state of crisis, but I'm in a state of pretty seriously reevaluating a lot of my political commitments right now. So I'm going to hem and haw and wishwash a lot, but that's not me trying to hide <laughs> the truth. That's just is actually the truth. Yeah. Um, I i don't know. I grew up, um, my dad was obviously my the primary political sort of influencer in my life. Dad was a, was a conservative, was a r- Republican, um, had worked briefly on the you know, on like the HW Bush camp, not in any, I don't mean in any significant way. I just right. mean like as a local, whatever, he in Colorado
1: got HW Bush elected. That's what I, yeah, he he was, specifically don't yeah. know no, your dad's um, Carl uh, Rove.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> fun fact for those of you who don't know. No. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm
1: sorry. You know, dad had always
0: been a big national review guy from day one. Like even when we grew up, I mean, not, not starving to death, but relatively poor, but always, we always had a subscription to national review. You know, my dad was very sad when William F. Buckley Jr. Died, um, and dad was politically complicated, but he was very sort of committed to that sort of brand of conservatism. And so I'm sure I talked to him at some point about Whitaker Chambers, yeah. and I tried to think about what, and I cannot for the life of me remember what we must have said. I, I'm sure he came up at some point. But so anyway, so I grew up in a kind of a, a politically conservative and uh, also not, a, not as religiously conservative, but certainly religious and also politically conservative, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. You know, I have, I have a lot of pastors in my family and that sort of thing. Um, so I kind of grew up in that context, and uh, there are definitely some essays I wrote in high school that, if they're ever revealed, that'll be it for me. Uh, that'll be that. Um, <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm...
1: my my copies are safely hidden, Bill, so...
0: <laughs> so, dear Ms. Bull, my, science, my social studies teacher in the 10th grade, please go ahead and burn that essay oh. I wrote about India, for the love of God, I beg you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I, so I was sort of aware of politics, but I was never terribly interested in... Politics as such, I had sort of a philosophical tra- trend to things, I guess, that was not terribly well developed. And uh, later on in college, I got I introduced people like John Stuart Mill, and so I started to move in kind of a libertarian direction, which has never been terribly well defined. Like I've I've never really been the sort of guy to read lots of books about politics. Right. I have tended to find the practice of politics desperately boring. Uh, my own sort of philosophical interests are more inclined to be. About ethics, like personal ethics, than about sort of political ethics, yeah. which are two different things. Uh, same. Um, but after moving through a, a sort of a libertarian phase, um, you know, particularly in like 2016, 2015 was an obvious time for lots of us to sort of reevaluate our political commitments, right, as that whole thing happened. Uh, yeah. Um, and I have uh, since sort of moved to, I'm still. I don't know. I'm starting to move towards something like libertarian socialism, right? Um, I realized a while ago my libertarian commitments were really more about ensuring people could live decent lives and be free from lots of intervention and a little bit less about property rights. Uh, I realized I didn't really care about some of the strong libertarian commitments to property rights as such, except insofar as they helped people live decent lives. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So some of the Martha Nussbaum, Amartya Sen, like freedom as capability stuff has really appealed to me. And I've been a pretty uh, voracious reader of like current affairs and some of the stuff Noam Chomsky says and so on. So while I'm not hundred percent willing to commit myself to that tradition, I think that's probably where I'm moving towards. I have a few, I'm a lawyer. So I have a few particular like legal issues that I, I know a little more about. And I'm much more concrete about because I know a bit more about how they actually work. But in general, I think that's my political journey. It's messy and doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and is more about intuition than any sort of coherent uh, philosophical commitment. So, all right, I did that. Your, your turn. Yeah, my <laughs> turn. Great.
1: No, so I, I do think, well, on the catch on the very end of what you said, um, there's actually a quote from Tom Stopper that he throws out in a random interview one time, which is something like, um, you know, he thinks most people's... Um, Intellectualism is just a mask for their temperament, you know. That their temperament is just masquerading as their intellect. Is maybe, maybe what he says. And I, I kind of, I kind of, I felt indicted by that because I definitely feel like like my own uh, reaction to politics, my own you know political self discovery, if you want to call it that, um, has been a lot about what you just said. It's, I mean, I think no matter no matter how kind of intellectualized I've tried to make my own. I don't know, my own opinions, my own theories, right? Like I've tried to read enough that I'm informed in a way that is rational and enlightened or yada, yada, yada. I I still, I feel like so much of it comes down to this basic temperament. Um, And I'm not sure I can define that. But what I will say is, um, similar to you, I grew up in a, conservative household and I I had a weirder and this is where it gets emotional in some ways right the emotional influences as well as the rational ones because like you my dad was you know mr conservative and um, I remember actually you and I talking in high school that like we had this one very you know liberal history teacher that we, that we all liked, and we just wanted, we wanted, like, our dads to debate him, not because we knew what we believed, because, like, our dads were some of the few smart Republicans, right? Do you remember this? Like, <laughs> I feel like we yeah. used to talk about it, like, that our dads, maybe, maybe they weren't right, but, like, they definitely were, they were definitely intelligent enough to defend their position, you know, with, with rigor and whatever, um... And so I didn't really know what I thought because my parents got a divorce and so my mom was really interesting. She was like this fundamentalist but also granola Christian. And so I had a real back and forth upbringing where like on one hand we were we were very conservative Christians. On the other hand, I mean yeah, my my mom was not a straightforward political conservative. Um almost the opposite of what you said in some ways. You know what I mean? Like she was not politically yeah. Attached to any kind of conservatism, she was just attached to sort of a, a small o orthodoxy of Christian tradition, and so um, I think the first time I had a my own coherent like young adult thought about politics that wasn't just like me espousing my parents' beliefs or or reacting against them sort of with the same unthinking you know knee jerk um, the inverse knee jerk. <laughs> Was uh, I do remember being, being like learning about trickle down economics? Um, I learned about it, I think, from someone that was pro trickle down economics, and I remember as soon as it was explained to me, I was like, "That there's no way. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's no way that like generating wealth for one station of society somehow like that that wealth is not going to get caught." up where it was generated, um, which, you know, that's me dumbing it down. and probably, you know, in general, I have a dumbed down economics. Um, but that was my first thought. And I think it was toward the end of high school. Cause I remember arguing about it the summer after my first year in college, um, uh, or, or some before my first year in college, sorry. Um, with someone at church who was surprised that someone from your family has these beliefs. I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we can still be good Christians. <laughs> um, but so and so the Christian part I bring up actually because I I do feel like that's almost the the place in this book that I related to most because um I think essentially one of the cases he tries to make is a case for, you know, transcendence or for for kind of these ultimate values influencing your political mindset. And I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but I actually feel like in my adult life as I've been driven farther and farther left, which is sort of the end of my political story, is that I've gone farther left on a lot of basic social welfare stuff. Um, It's been driven by sort of a, you know, essentially a Christian socialism. Um, You know, Liz Brunig is probably one of the better manifestations of a lot of what I believe, um, including her commitment to sort of a small O orthodoxy of Christian faith, which includes having some tricky opinions on various hot topics, but with a commitment to, like, those who are most in need we should be orienting society toward them, right? Like, I think if society was oriented toward, you know, the material good of children and the poor or whatever, right? Like, who are actually most people in poverty are children because it's just, you know, how statistics work. But, I, you know, I that's, that's where I found myself. And I, I, so it was interesting to read this because in some ways he's like the most um, vociferous representation of a lot of the Christian conservatism that I pretty early on left you know um, I remember you and I were friends in high school and we, we both had various conservative opinions We were both probably various variously still conservative in a lot of obvious ways but I remember even then sort of bucking against some of the orthodoxies that our parents believed in uh, orthodoxy in a political sense this time um, and I feel like that was just the beginning of thinking this this you know this union of straight Republican politics with a sort of evangelical right, I just never liked it, um, at least from the time of you know I would say seventeen or eighteen on. Um, so yeah, that's where I am, and I, I find it really a bizarre place to be because I I and for this book especially because this book just felt so stupidly relevant. Even as like I, I was annoyed by it and I disagreed with it or I was challenged by it, whatever my reaction was. Even when I appreciated it, I found it so annoyingly relevant because you know he's sort of calling for a a calcification of left versus right, right? Like at one point he says, the only politics is now revolution versus counter-revolution. Anything in the middle is just someone who doesn't know they're on the left or the right. And I feel like we're in a bit of that moment now. And what's crazier is like Russia's involved again somehow. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Russia and, you know, and, and actually we'll say, as we pivot to maybe a bigger context that we can talk about the book more, like don't you find it, I actually found it really helpful in some ways As I was reading this book, because there's part of me that wanted to be like, did anything come out of this espionage? You know, like, like, was this espionage useful at all? Was all of this just pointless, including his testimony, his destroying himself, as he says it? Like, part of me thinks that maybe it was, but you only have to, like, think about the reaction to this current idea of the Trump administration colluding with Russia on the last election. I feel like that actually was really helpful to be like, oh, okay, that gives me a, a guideline for maybe how Whitaker Chambers wants us to think about this accusation of espionage, right? Like he's accusing someone yeah. basically he's accusing of like one of like, you know, um, secretary of state's chief staff of colluding with someone who wants to destroy us. Right. Like that, that gives at least some context for the moment, because part of me, this is so long ago and things shook out so differently that I think Whitaker Chambers believed that, um, I was sort of gobsmacked by how relevant our moment was and explaining, the stakes of what he thinks is going on so i mean maybe that doesn't help anyone at all <laughs> for us to blow beat about where we come from but i think it is i basically think i came to this with a bias against it and it and it i'm not sure he totally shook me out of that bias i guess is what i would say um what, what would you say on that front
0: yeah i really didn't know what i was getting into with this book you know what i mean like i knew it had sort of broader philosophical and religious stuff it was going to try to say but i was I really didn't know what it was going to end up being. And I, I, I'd read enough that people have very different reactions to this book. So I I went in just kind of curious more than anything else, I think. Um, yeah. I have a quick thing I want to say. So you mentioned Elizabeth Brunig, right? Yeah. Um, and when I was partly in preparation for this podcast, I was trying to think, like, who are some of the people I have been reading more recently that I, I really sort of have been influenced by? And it's kind of a mess, but like three of the names that came to mind were Elizabeth Brunig, Nathan J. Robinson, and Noam Chomsky. And that's really funny because Noam Chomsky's a thousand years old and both Robinson and Brunig are slightly younger than we are. I know. Um, (laughs) So I don't know what that means, but it feels like there's something in that. The two of the people I think are, you know, particularly good uh, modern political commentators are, you know, I think Nathan J. Robinson just turned 30. And I think Brunig hasn't even quite turned 30. No, yeah, (laughs) probably
1: not. They're so damn young.
0: (laughs) What a weird thing that is. Um, that doesn't really have any sort of meaning beyond it. It's just, that's, well, but that's weird.
1: I do. I mean, but I think it is. I mean, I think, but I think actually, so the heart of what we both described was we both grew up in these kind of, with various emphases, Christian and conservative, not always Christian conservative on both sides, weirdly, in different ways. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think what's interesting to me is like that, I feel like that is part of this moment is actually that his great, um his great idea his big idea i mean not his good idea but like his like his all kind of powerful idea that he is insistent on is that what he is declaiming is not marxism as or communism as an economic theory he's like it's not about economics yeah. he says it's about god it's about atheism it's about the vision you have for man and what man should or should not be doing and i feel like i very much came up in a time in my own home but also just culturally where that sort of makes sense to me like there was this clear political path for you if you went to church and that wasn't always true like there's been plenty of mainline protestant liberals since you know that mainline thing started existing um and yet the majority Christian voice that we heard from for the last 30 years or since maybe his time even, has been basically aping a lot of what he says, right? That like, you need market capitalism to ensure the freedoms necessary for man to seek God. And if you take away that freedom, which is based on this economics, you're taking away God. <laughs> and someone like Liz Brunig has been really essential in this moment at carving out a different space. Um, enough so that like, there's actually a recent magazine I just read that's published by this kind of crazy group called the Bruderhof. It's called Plow Magazine. And um, they're basically this, this, these, uh, these Christians who live in a commune um, lifestyle. And the magazine is all about like, Can you be Christian and pro-capitalism? And that's a crazy pivot. (laughs) It took 70 years, but it's a crazy pivot from what Whitaker Chambers is talking about. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So it feels relevant just because I think that this, this moment, like, it does feel like there's a realignment happening with what's left and what's right. And, you know, what does your basic personal identity, like, where does that kind of naturally push you? And I think 15 years ago, being a Christian, I felt literal pressure that if i was sort of like a good christian i had to be right-leaning that was the only outlet for my beliefs and i feel like that is now being challenged in a way that is having an effect
0: whereas i think my religious you know struggles were always more about theology and stuff like that when i was in high school you know what i mean like i I didn't actually attend a very conservative church but i would go to a pretty conservative church camp where the issue was always more about is there evolution or not and less like what should politics <laughs> yeah. look like so i got in a lot of squabbles over that kind of thing but i think we had a slightly different um well that's what i mean that's I what know. and that's
1: what's funny about the, the emphasis because i feel like my emphasis was on conservative christian theologically which i broken out of some of that as well but actually it, like it wasn't married to a christian politics and so from a young age i felt I felt that disjunct. Do you know what I mean? Like I felt that people were like, how can you, how can your mom be so basically, you know, such a good Bible, you know, loving God-fearing woman. And yet she's, you know, not voting down the party line or whatever. Right. Like that was there from so young that I, I think early on it was like, is there another way to express political belief as someone who believes in God? And, um, Whitaker Chambers, I think he's one of the voices who founded, The idea of no, (laughs) no, there's not. There is the left, which is materialism. And there's the right, which is he keeps saying freedom, which drove me absolutely bonkers. But um, maybe we should pivot to the book unless you have something else to add. (laughs) No, I think we can move on. Yeah. Maybe in looking at the book, one of the things we should talk about is something we've already covered potentially. But Chambers goes out of his way to an exhausting extent to really say that his essential witness isn't about politics it's about God that he is a witness in a strictly evangelical sense and I guess one do you believe that do you think that's an, that's a claim that he actually backs up with what he writes and two would it be an effective claim like is it, is it an effective sorry uh, strategy that he has that he's gonna make this sort of evangelical witness? be the framework for his political witness so yeah did you find it at all like what do you think it would be convincing but also was that actually what he did so i think this is one of the most
0: interesting parts about the book it's called witness and he's very uh, into the word witness he uses it a lot particularly in the latter half of the book um, to be clear, I, I think we should note that the structure of the book, the first half is really very different from the second half. Yeah. The first half is much more sort of narrative based and he will go on tangents about sort of broader political or philosophical things. But he's much more likely to just say, you know, and then we met these people who did these things in the government and I got these documents from them. You know, uh, here's this really interesting character portrait of this Colonel Boris Baikov character. Yeah. who is uh just fascinating. And then the second half is on the one hand, a narrative account of the Hiss case, but it's really jumbled in its... I mean, I'm actually going to say it's not clear. Like, I don't just think it's an interesting structural choice. I think No, he's unclear. Yeah. Um, So it's partly... Here's what happened in the Hiss case, but because he's writing it in 1952, and the Hiss case was like, what, 48 to 50? I think, yeah, 48 and 49. um, He assumes everyone knows everything about it, so it'd be kind of like reading something about the... Like the Trump election, which... Makes a lot of references to the Mueller report, but never actually says who Robert Mueller is. You know right, what I mean? Yep. Like it's, it's sort of you already know about this, right? So here's a particular thing I want to say about it, which I can't say was necessarily wrong because he was writing it in '52, but reading it in 2019 was confusing, very confusing. Um, but so the second half of the book, he's he'll he'll alternate between like long sections of transcripts from the his one of the his hearings or something, and then his sort of broad statement about his his personal sort of his psychological state and what he was trying to do as a witness. A witness, not just literally a witness in a trial, but a witness for God, a witness for Christendom, I think he even says at one point, like Christianity, you know what I mean? A witness for this way of living, which is against the evils of communism. And he says it a lot, and I'm never quite clear on what exactly it is he's a witness for. He repeatedly tries to say, I'm not just a witness against Alger Hiss or against... Communism. I'm a witness for this other vision, and I have no idea from the book what that is other than not Stalin. Completely agree.
1: Yeah. No, that's. The, I think that's the big problem he has. There's no positive vision he actually ever outlines.
0: So what I want to say is I don't think it's very effective. I do think he's honest, though. One of the things I came away from this book feeling is for all that he's really bombastic and self-aggrandizing and makes these pretty broad philosophical claims without any kind of content to them— I don't think he's lying. I think he's pretty honest that this is how he feels what he's doing because he's not like he, he's very clear. His whole journey through both to communism and away from it is not based on a sort of elaborate intellectual like he, he's not he, he's not a policy guy, right? Like no. it's, it's not like he's got an elaborate intellectual scaffolding for this. It's he's a poet, right? It's emotions. It's and he's very honest about this. He has a literal sort of Damascus moment in a, uh, in a stairwell, he says, right? Like he says he hears a voice saying something about, I don't have the exact quote, but like that, you know, it'll all be well for him if he, if he tells the truth. Uh, this is not a, and so I think that his, you asked me, is this what he's actually doing? I think it is. I think it's what he thinks he's doing, is articulating this, this sort of force that's not terribly intellectually, it's not about an intellectual level, it's an emotional or a sort of passionate level, I think that's what he thinks he's doing. I don't know if I thought it was terribly convincing if you weren't already in a position to be convinced by it.
1: Yeah, that's. I I think that's right. I I think what was especially interesting is that he is so committed to this sort of, um, sorry, to these actually various dichotomies of like the intellect versus you know the spirit, the soul versus the mind. Like he is obviously a super smart guy. Like 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 we actually haven't mentioned that. I mean his life is nuts, right? He ends up as a senior editor of time. You know, he helps review Finnegan's wake and writes various other things that prove his sort of intellectual, um, heft. Um, he's no dummy. And yet, I think you're right. And that's actually why I brought up this, that stopper quote earlier, that the temperament determines so much of how we express our intellect that maybe sometimes that's the more important part. He almost thinks the same thing, only he really thinks that it's like a spiritual component that determines yeah. what you're doing is right or wrong or how, what you should try and figure out. How you should try and figure out what's right and wrong it needs to be a spiritual process not just this intellectual process. What I, what I kept struggling with is like what he actually did effectively in the first part of the book, and somewhat with, I actually, I kind of like the transcript stuff, I will say. Like, I kind of thought it was interesting to just, you know, I know you're a lawyer, so I'm sure it's not quite as fascinating to you. Um, no, actually, I, I enjoyed that
0: part. I, I enjoyed reading the transcript. Yeah, his commentary, It was the, his commentary, the thing that right? I found befuddling. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I agree. Yeah, so the digression, uh, yeah, his, his digressions were totally the problem in the second half of the book. But um, in the first half, and I actually wrote this in, like, one of our kind of notes to each other, You know, I I basically said, like, he he builds a case when he even breaks with the Communist Party. He lists his case for why Soviet communism in the 30s and 40s was bad, evil. It, like, starved out Ukraine. It was killing people in secret, throwing people in camps, yada, yada, yada. Um, Side note I was reading this oral history of the transition from the Soviet Union to what is now currently, you know, new Russia um all in most of the, the oral history is with people who lived in the soviet union and they recall all of these crazy things and the consistent through line of that book called second hand time by svetlana Aleksevich, um the consistent through line is that these soviets all think they all they all describe these terrible terrible horrible horrible things and then talk about how they missed the soviet union um and actually i bring that up partly because one it it really corroborated some of what he was saying about the literal evils that he was feeling oppressed by, right, like he felt he was in cahoots with the people who were doing the worst things possible, and that's kind of hard to argue against, right, like you said, his policy of not Stalin is not the problem maybe um but what what he doesn't capture basically is why anyone might go through all of that and then miss it because of this transition to a totally consumerist age that also leaves the soul bereft, right? So if he's making the argument that one political system is guaranteed to be despotism because of how it views God, like, how does he possibly explain the switch that happened in Russia where a lot of people now go to church, but as one quote I have says, like, very few are believers, most are just sufferers, and they've transitioned from Lenin to the saints, and yet there's still the same gap, um which is a bit off, you know, it's a bit off in the weeds now, sorry. But I guess I'm just saying, like, his failure to articulate how a person might, (laughs) you know, have this kind of freedom and yet still lack all the things he talks about is, like, the great, I don't know, one of the great holes in his argument, right? Because if you're making a spiritual argument, then the the very answer for you can't be political, right? Like, isn't that the whole point? Like, if you're making a spiritual argument... Then you can't say that this political economy will guarantee your spiritual satisfaction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is he doesn't. He says early on that when he first made the
0: break from communism, he talked to his wife and said, "We're losing. We're leaving the winning side." Right. Yeah. So he he's got a very sort of doomed vibe over everything. So I don't oh, yeah. think he would have said, you know, well, capitalism is is going to save us. But I think he he said communism is so evil that like. This other thing, which isn't he talks about capitalism a few times because he talks about how the New Deal is a transfer of power from the business to the government. And that's presumably bad, although he doesn't really flesh that out very much. Um, But he doesn't really talk a lot about capitalism as such. He talks about a society that still like has God in it. Right. Like that's, that's the way he tends to think about it is communism is bad because it's atheist and nebulous other stuff is good because it's not atheist. And on the one hand, I think it's it is weak because he doesn't have a a positive in the sense of a a positive vision he's trying to articulate, really. But I do think he's it's important to note he thinks that we're all doomed, basically, right? Like he thinks communism is going to win. Uh, So I don't I don't I think if you said you don't articulate a clear vision here, he might say you're probably right. Um, Because it's all about the sort of personal journey about He's articulating forward this, this witness he's bearing against an evil. You know, he, he lives in his life, uh, at, right after he graduates from high school, he goes on this sort of railway tour for not very clear reasons, other than just because his home life is a nightmare. And he goes and he works in New York City for a while on the subway, uh, like as, just a, as, a, as a laborer living in a barracks and having to mind the third rail as he hammers stuff. And then he goes to D.C. and does some stuff for a while, and then finds himself in Louisiana unable to work living on like a loaf of bread every other day right and just kind of wandering around and meeting the various characters he meets and he you know he paints these people interestingly he talks about the you know the the prostitute and her pimp that live like two doors down from him in louisiana that he gets to hang out with the sort of Polish or or mexican or or uh, i think italian immigrants he works with in new york city some of whom get really badly injured by this project yeah no it's know, it's, a, um, it's some crazy like, stuff <laughs> horribly murdered by touching the or not murdered but horribly disabled by touching the third rail and so he has a real he has an understanding of what real poverty can look like but there's never any sense in this book about what he thinks should be done about that other than not communism right like he cites that as why he became a communist fair enough but then he doesn't really explain what is to be done about these issues other than communism and so like is the answer nothing is it because he has a bit about how in America if you're poor you can move you can you know you can Across from the uh, f- across from the wrong side of the tracks, but there's not really a lot of content to that.
1: Well, and I and I do think I mean I think you're right to to point out that his his basic kind of negative stance is consistent because I already quoted it once. I think that he talks about that politics is now revolution, counter revolution, and I think he does give away that in a, in an interesting sense he's still enthralled. To the Communist Party, right? Like you talk about, he thinks they're going to win. He thinks he's on the losing side, and so actually, his vision, which I was kind of putting some words in his mouth about, like if you're anti-communist, you must be pro, you know, capitalist, basically. Which you know, I was, you know, whatever. But actually, you're right. I think he would say, no, 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 no. Um, the threat is so great; it doesn't matter what we're saving, so long as it's a space in which God is allowed to, you know, exist culturally. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, what all, I think what, why it's important to talk about this contextually is because that does seem almost ridiculous from this vantage point, right? Um, because we've survived the fall of the Soviet Union, right? That happened, I think, the year you were born. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Berlin Wall fell in 89, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, And like this book about perestroika that I'm reading, it's fascinating partly because um, there's a whole generation of Russians who literally don't know their grandparents were in camps. Not just like they've forgotten a lot of the worst atrocities, their own relatives were in camps, and those relatives still don't talk about it because they're so scared of talking about anything, that this new generation has forgotten the actual suffering that their forebears went through. And um, I think he's basically trying to preempt that, right? He's trying to say, no matter what... Like, I'm a counter-revolutionist, but that means that the revolutionists set the terms of the fight, which I think he, he believes.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, which is part of the reason the book is so weird. Well, I, well no, <laughs> and I, I just
1: think it's interesting because I think it's it's a weird concession to make. Like, you kind of give up the argument in a certain sense, right? Like, if you can only respond to the problem instead of create something new to reframe the problem, like, aren't you inevitably – Going to just be like keeping your you know your finger in the dike <laughs> the rest of your life like that's not I feel like a, a solution um, which, I, which I know we're already saying I just I just I just find it very frustrating
0: <laughs> so I want to I want to switch gears a bit here we've talked a lot about the overarching sort of themes of the book because that's I mean that's what he wants to talk about right but I think. The first half of the book really—we need to spend some time in that because it's a. I think that part is fascinating. I don't know about you, but I was, was really, great. pretty enraptured by the first 350 pages in my copy of this book, which is more of a more of a biography. Um, and I just—I don't know. Did you have any particular moments that really stuck out at you? Because I found him not only to be telling an interesting story, but also to be really a, a very. Oh, a really powerful writer on a paragraph by paragraph basis on a lot of this stuff. There were a lot of lines I just wrote down. Like, this is a really great sentence. Um, I don't know. Did you have anything in particular that jumped out at you from that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I believe his mom says at one point that a woman with an axe is a match for any man. Um, I wrote that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't even. I don't even have it in front of me. I just. I think that's about what it is because it was such a great great sentence um but this uh this review that i sent you that and that kind of sparked me wanting to read the book um from book forum um it does so the the review kind of talks about the fault of the books which you and i have kind of maybe gone on too long about but it really says that basically at heart whitaker chambers was a pure creature of literature who stumbled into politics and i think that was true at every stage of his career like you say like he talks about his life and his life is actually sort of a tragedy and uh of of not epic proportions but it has a certain outsized you know kind of aura about it um and i think that that's actually the problem he keeps getting into as he writes is that when he sticks to like the narrative storytelling when he sticks to the descriptions and sort of the event by event It's completely fascinating. Even for me, in the second half of the book, like we just said, he exerts the testimonies from Alger Hiss really smartly in a way that really shows drama. And, like, he builds these climaxes that are clearly artificial because these, of course, were, like, days and days and hours and hours of testimony, and yet he carves out sort of these moments and these juxtaposition of moments that create a narrative. And in the first half, to get back to your actual question, sorry, I think what jumped out to me initially... um, was his description of Long Island and his desire to be farming? You know what I mean. Like there is this this really simple uh, hope at the bottom of his life that is like immediately destroyed <laughs> because like yeah. he's told that he can only call his father Jay, um, and then it only gets worse from there. I should, I, yeah, I should let you tell you some some of your favorite moments because I was just gonna I was just gonna keep listing every single cool thing that happens because I what sends out to me I guess mostly is his father's and mother's terrible relationship and then his brother's suicide. Those that narrative arc was super compelling and super affecting for me.
0: Yeah, I would agree. That's clearly, and that's clearly what is kind of the hook for his whole life. I mean, he, he says as much that he had thought sort of was aware of communism and was thinking about it, but became a communist like the day after his his brother's funeral or something like that, you know, as he's walking yeah. around looking at the stars Um listening to the new york new year's eve revelers right as he's at his brother's grave right Right. um but like i just want to pull out a couple individual paragraphs i think one thing we can do sometimes in this podcast is forget to provide specific quotes because we're having too much fun talking about (laughs) stuff, and i'm trying to move away from that so i just uh it's it's after they've after the funeral like it's just he he he, because he can be very bombastic a lot of the time he's very fond of of these big arcing words about you know the nature of this or that and communism and atheism and so on but then he'll do stuff like this my mother wanted to spend the last night in the room with my brother's body i set up a cot for her she asked me to stay with her i lay down on the floor with my clothes on beside my brother's casket i did not sleep sometimes my mother made a little gurgling sound she had been weeping in her sleep and awakened when the cheers choked her i prayed evil that drifts through the world pass by this house tonight we buried my brother in the sandhill graveyard it was a sunny autumn day shortly before his birthday. As I stood by the open grave, I could see one of the lakes where I had wandered as a boy. We tossed in the handfuls of earth. I took my mother and father home. And I think there's a real command in the simplicity of the language there that I thought was just immediately effective, um, both for explaining, both just as a piece of writing, and also just as communicating the sort of on the universality of these kind of emotions he's going through, right? He he's always trying to make a connection between himself and the the sort of the, the proletariat or at least the poorer people, right? Mm-hmm. He wants to really draw a distinction between himself and the liberal intellectuals. And I think paragraphs like that really make the point better than his explicitly trying to say that does later. Like it'd be very easy to write something like that in really big dramatic language and it'd be much less effective than just short sentences you know, I took my mother and father home and I thought stuff like that was, I thought just very
1: well, similarly, this is, you know, break, you know, kind of breaking away from the first half, which we don't have to leave completely. But, um, so in the midst of him testifying during one of the grand jury hearings or sorry, in between grand jury hearings or whatever, at the end of the book, he very matter of factly details his own attempt at suicide, um, which was in his mother's home (laughs) with gas, which is actually an exact echo of his brother's first attempt at suicide, if nothing else, because uh, Whitaker Chambers finds his brother trying to kill himself with the oven open, basically. And then yeah. he does it through different means, but he basically has the same experience in his own childhood home, and his mom, you know, ber- you know, in, his, in, in this almost humorous scene, berates him. Like, how could you? How could you? But I, I was so struck by it, because much like his earlier... Uh, biographical storytelling yeah he really pairs the language down he says exactly what he did he talks about how he couldn't read the instructions on the poison capsules and how he woke up and how his mom kind of was funny even though it was the worst circumstance ever and i found that a better description of sort of the abyss he found himself in than these sort of um, (laughs) never ending references to Dante or the Bible, Jonah, whatever, right? Where he kind of keeps casting himself in these literally mythic terms that didn't resonate. But when he brings it down to that human level, it's amazing. And I think it's actually the places where I find what he says about the book to potentially be true, that it is a witness of some kind, right? That this guy did go through something totally worth sharing and that it was something spiritual, something kind of that transcended the political conflict in which he found himself. Um, but also from the first half of the book, um, I, what also stands out to me in addition to um, some of the, the railway stuff you talked about or his brother is he really does love nature and it comes back again on the end of the book. And sometimes he overdoes it. It's hard for him not to fall into like the pathetic fallacy where The way that the field is mown reflects exactly your depression right like sometimes that's that's called you know the pathetic fallacy for a reason but i still i i found it convincing and i actually found it admirable that he took a very real joy for nature and in his adult life after breaking with communism i mean he and his wife run a farm until basically he dies um and they do it at great cost themselves personally financially and otherwise and I found that admirable, and I found it most admirable when he talks about teaching his son how to ride a tractor, um, as opposed to talking about, you know, <laughs> I don't know, the agrarian future of the socialist farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
0: think one of the real themes that runs throughout this book is, is ornithology, actually. It's bird watching. Yeah, um, true. By which I don't just mean that there are some sort of... Plot points, if you'll forgive me, that hinge on it. But he he uses a lot of like avian metaphors, like again and again he'll, he'll talk about the the liberals and their iries and their roosts at one point. But he'll he'll say other things too, and again and again he notices the birds. That's that's the detail he'll throw in, right? Is the the robins all like is it when he's a child he wanders out and he hears. I think then it was Gold's interest, actually. And then later on, he's walking with his wife, and they all hear the robins. And as they're preparing to make a choice, they're talking to each other. And, you know, she says, what are you thinking about? Wait, you were thinking about the robins, weren't you, right?
1: Yeah. Which is,
0: is, is an interesting thing, because there's clearly this, this through line of paying attention to nature and of, like, these little small things that are floating around in nature that is throughout the book. I, I do think, particularly towards the end, he's talking about, you know— all his farming and stuff and it feels like he's putting it on but i do think it's based in truth which is that he really clearly cares for these things quite a bit um and of course the, the most important note about the birds is the proto-notary warbler which is um okay can i kind i just talk about the proto-notary warbler for a little bit is that all right <laughs> yes please right. so there's a little yellow bird called the proto-notary warbler i don't know anything about it except what i read here and i looked them up on wikipedia afterwards this comes up because alger hiss who is again the man that chambers is testifying against and who had been chambers best friend really in the communist underground well, he wasn't underground but in the communist apparatus as it's called right um his is a real bird watcher like chambers likes birds but Hiss is a bird watcher and so is his wife and he talks at one point about having seen this relatively rare bird at a place in baltimore and later chambers recollection of Hiss saying that will be used as a, as a note in the uh huac hearings the us on american committee's hearings because when one of the senators, who is also or congressman rather, who is also like a bird watcher, asks him, "Have you ever seen a notary warbler?" Because it was something Chambers had said before, Hiss like lights up. And he's like, "Yeah, it's this beautiful little bird with a little yellow head." You know. <laughs> yeah. And so, on the one hand, it's just like a point, sort of showing that yes, Hiss did in fact know Chambers, because that's when when Hiss starts out, he says, "I've never met this man in my life." What are you talking about? And so they end up holding these, like, separate parallel hearings where they try to get a bunch of details from Chambers about Hiss's life and then ask Hiss about those same details to see how they compare, right? Which is just really kind of an interesting—so much of the rest of, like, the meat of the hearings is about those discrepancies and how they work out. But this thing with the bird, I think, is important because earlier on, Chambers sees Alger Hiss looking at not literally this bird, but a bird, and just, like, being so—it's one of the most human moments we see from Alger Hiss— it's Alger Hiss as this bird watcher, right? Like, and so there's these weird sort of humanizing notes because throughout Chambers wants to demonize communism in the strongest possible terms, but he's always very hesitant to demonize individual communists. Uh, even some of the really caricaturized ones, he tries to find some amount of humanity in them. And so I think this there's something about this bird that flies throughout the whole book that I can't, haven't quite been able to pick out, and I'd have to read the book about six more times to do it, I think. But He's doing some interesting structural things, even as he, I think, kind of loses the plot towards the end. I guess that's my whole bit is there's a burden. It's cool. Damn it. But anyway, there's a burden. It's cool. <laughs> well, no, but I,
1: I no, but I think. I mean, I think. Okay, yeah, that there's a burden. It is cool. I, I should actually emphasize that it was pretty cool in the book. Um, but I, I do think that you're you're getting at this way in which he does try to, like. So I, I think the chronology totally falls apart at the end, and it feels like the exhaustion of writing the book, the exhaustion of having lived through what he's describing in the book it almost like catches up with the narrative itself, right? That it becomes sort of this mess of, you know, sweat and confusion, right? Um, And yet, before that, before it sort of, you know, disintegrates, um, I do think he's really good at these various threads that are, that are often explicit sort of points about the Hiss case or about, you see, as a boy, I was willing to fight if it was necessary, but only if it was absolutely necessary, right? He, he's always kind of inserting the his case right at the moment where, you know, he might explain his own reasons for testifying or whatever, and yet he's actually doing a lot of that same work I think basically, like you've said, in a literary mode, right? He's got these recurring motifs, whether it's the bird washing or the nature, or what have you, that I think ground the whole thread of who he is much better than his consistent and overdone commentary on those, you know, threads of existence. Um, I will also say, though, but the bigger point that you made that I think we should follow up on is, I find his explanation for what he did and how it went and why he did it or whatever I found it compelling because he does take care in the first half of the book to never really malign anyone he works with he talks about the hisses being good friends right he talks about them in only glowing terms and he continues to talk about them after the hiss case starts and actually there's a weird there's a re- a really small note where when he talks about, um, the various forces trying to destroy him. He always refers to them as like pro-Hiss or the Hiss camp, but he actually almost never says Alger Hiss is trying to destroy me. He talks about the people around Hiss doing it on Hiss's behalf. And there's a weird way in which that kind of note almost reinforced his claim to me that he really wasn't blaming Alger Hiss. They really were two men on opposite sides of the fence, both using whatever they had to win this battle. And but it also convinced me that like his genuine tenderness for the friends he used to have was real, that he had a real human connection with people, and that he was tearing that down for something that was maybe worthwhile in his mind. But that he's pretty clear he regrets at every stage, right? Like he does not enjoy any stage, at least according to the book of what he talks about. Um, and I will say also the other thing that I think um, impacts the dis- dis- the disintegration at the end of the book is I actually think the press's virulent attacks on him, it don't, they give him a complex, right? I feel like so much of this book is definitely responding not only to the allegations and to the sort of uh, literal facts of the press at the time, or the facts the press are pushing at the time, but they're responding to the the temperature of the moment, right? That he has spent these so many, you know, three or four years bombarded <laughs> at every turn, that he has to get it out. He has to get it all out and he's going to get it out with a sort of self obsession that I found frustrating. And also with a confusion that I think comes from literally just being exhausted. Um,
0: Well, yeah, no, I mean, I I totally understand, you know, he's, he's, he has a habit of working himself into a, into a bad, like that's, that's sort of how he is. He's clearly obsessive. He talks again and again and again, about when he's working at time. You know, I got into the habit of working through the day and then the night and then the next day without any rest. Oh, my gosh. You're like, well, that's not... You can't do that, Whitaker. Like, that's
1: not... <laughs> You're literally going to a, And then he has
0: a, <laughs> you know, he has a heart attack so bad that he lies in bed for, like, three months at one point. You know, um, there's... He's clearly... You know, and he, he throws himself into things at 1,000 miles an hour. You know, right. he's the biggest communist, and then he's the biggest anti-communist. And there's... I get a pretty clear picture of his psychology through here. Sometimes it's when he's doing it on purpose and sometimes it's when he's not doing it on purpose. Yes. Yes. And I I get this impression of this just obsessive and very brilliant, but actually not terribly formally educated. Like he did like half of a college degree. Right. Um, But I mean, ridiculously smart. I think he's read everything, you know, but just incredibly lonely guy. Really? You know, like who, who's never felt at home anywhere. He consistently emphasizes how alone he feels during the his case, but even before at time where he's this sort of aggressively anti-communist voice time the magazine, where he's this aggressively anti-communist voice, which puts him in conflict with the actual like secret hidden communists in the time office. Which, sure, I'll assume that he wasn't <laughs> them up, right? I mean, th- there were they were all over the media, I guess. Uh, but also with the sort of progressive liberal types who were not communists but were sort of tended to take criticisms of communism as criticism of them is his sort of argument and he says that they're right to do that that they just don't understand how communist they are basically right. um but he talks about how alone he is at time because he's gotten crosswise with all of those folks and how alone he is at um you know he's living on his farm and it's just him and his wife and he has no other friends in the world and on the one hand I imagine it would be easy to feel that way. On the other hand, really there were, there was no one around. Like you had all these congressmen who were gunning for you. Like Richard Nixon was, was working for you. Like, why did you have to isolate yourself this way? I don't understand that it had to necessarily be like this, but he, he chooses it to. And that I think feeds into this sort of, he has a lot of time just to sit and stew and think about what's happening to him. And so that's why you get this sort of, I mean, neurotic self-obsessed, paragraphs you get out of the end when he's talking about his little sling against the villains of communism and comparing himself to jonah and such like i it's the sort of thing i completely understand how a person would wind himself up into writing i just you just end up feeling sad that nobody you know yeah took him out for a drink like I mean, <laughs> i'm not i'm not being facetious either like honest to god like
1: well you know what's funny though is i i, I think he actually vacillates <laughs> on that even right because at times he talks about that their community on the farm or around the farm totally came around them like time paid for his lawyers until he resigned from dime. Um, And so I think there's a way in which he, he does try to like kind of like hedge his descriptions of loneliness by saying like people were trying to help, but I think what you said at first is, is true. He is a fundamentally lonely person. He was lonely in his own house growing up. He was lonely uh, he, he was lonely enough that he left his house for no real reason to go on the road and kind of do a vagabondy rapscallion adventure that turns out pretty much exactly as it usually turns out. He writes home and you know goes back. Um, and yet like he gets married he's in part of the he's part of a literal secret society <laughs> you know and yeah. he still feels all alone in a way that is just persistent um but i think uh i think the other part of it at the end besides him kind of stewing so much that he has to self-aggrandized as a way to justify how much he's talking about himself. I actually think he keeps talking about he and Alger Hiss as these representatives of a, you know, almost cosmic battle of good and evil, right? That like, they, yeah. they themselves are nuanced and different and you know, very human, but that they represent these very concrete, mutually exclusive forces. Um, communism and freedom is how he always frames it, at least at the beginning how he frames it. And then, of course, good and evil is the obvious you know ultimate powers he's talking about but i think <laughs> i think what drove me crazy is, of course is that because he's so committed to it being a grand struggle to it being this huge cosmic battle i actually like i, I the, the the exhaustion he feels and must have felt going through this very trying ordeal came through less and less as he tries to aggrandize it because he's not just aggrandizing himself yeah. he tries at every turn to talk about the implications um, beneath everything he says, and there's a note that I wrote that I uh, I shared with you and Art back and forth, which is um he's on this uh, he's on Meet the Press, right? He goes on Meet the Press, a radio program at the time, and he does it against his better judgment, and he's of course bombarded with questions that about the things he shouldn't answer. The biggest question, of course, being, "Will you say here in studio, not under the you know auspices of the Hueck hearing?" that Alger Hiss is a communist because of course, Alger Hiss has threatened to sue him. <laughs> yeah. If Whitaker Chambers makes this claim outside of a protected space. And so it's this big moment and Chambers takes a second and says, all he says, <laughs> he says, I answered Alger Hiss was a communist, <laughs> which great. That's brave. Truly a brave thing to do. I think actually, you know, I, I maybe he's a liar and a sociopath, but if he's right about the situation, totally a moment of courage yeah absolutely (laughs) but he says but i like to believe that some who heard what i said heard at the same time its inward meaning that meaning was that god who is a god of mercy is also the god of whom it is written he has a german phrase that he translates as the god who made iron grow he wanted no slaves What? (laughs) What (laughs) (laughs) is that? For all of the various self-aggrandizing he does, calling himself Jonah, talking about Dante, I get it. Like, literally purgatory is an expiation of your sins through suffering, right? He feels like he's doing that. He's having to relive all of his sin publicly in order to become clean. Okay. It's a ridiculous thing to keep saying to me, but I get that at least there's like a logical connection that you're blowing up for the sake of dramedy or <laughs> dramedy <laughs> uh, for the sake of drama. <laughs> but this moment, this was the moment when I was like, I was already done with his self-aggrandizing, but this was the moment where he totally broke me. Cause I, I, it makes no sense. There's, there's no reason that anyone in their right mind would think, Algiers is a communist. God is the God who made iron grow. He takes no slaves. Like, how could you possibly get from that? And what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. Um, I mean, I can speculate. I can do all the literary criticism, criticism for him. But I felt like that was the moment where he really betrayed himself, or at least maybe finalized... The ways in which he is forcing, absolutely forcing, a grandiose meaning on a lot of these human interactions that simply doesn't fit, in my opinion. Um, but also, that was just a crazy moment. Crazy moment. Yeah, it's
0: it's it's a bonkers transition. I, but I, I think that's one of the problems with the book as a whole. Is he wants to blow? The, his case, you know, was the thing that happened in his life, right? I mean, oh, that totally. Was, so, in a personal sense, it was this massive catastrophe or, or whatever. So because it's the only thing he can think about for reason, you know, good reason, right? Yeah. I think he, he wants to blow it up to being this this fundamentally important thing for the world as a whole. And I'm not sure it always can bear that. Like, it certainly was a big deal. Like, my understanding is it did spawn, you know, infinite thinking and kicked Hueck into high gear, which let McCarthyism later... You know what I mean? Because there, there were yeah. communists hiding in the government, and right. therefore there must be communists everywhere. So I don't mean to say it wasn't important, but... You know, the espionage is not about, like, nuclear codes. You know what I mean? Like, the, 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 it's never clear to me exactly what the espionage was, but it's not, like, it's all in the late 30s. It's some people giving stuff they shouldn't give to an ostensible ally, which they shouldn't do, to be clear. You should not copy government records and give them to another country. But, like it's not clear to me that this warrants quite this scale does that make again it's it's no, not like totally, totally agree. a single iron sight for a particular gun there's a lot of nothing in particular I think he even is pretty honest that it's not any of it of any particular right significance you know the Russians are really trying to find out what the secret language is in this one treaty and it's and chamber says well it's 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 bad it's they don't like you that's what it is like you know what it is you don't need to know the words. You know what it is. It's that they don't like the Soviet Union. <laughs> and so he's he's constantly sort of acknowledging that the apparatus is is almost farcical in place. I mean, they occasionally do shoot people, but mostly they shoot people who lose the apparatus. Leave the apparatus. Right. It seems like right. So like, I'm not saying this was a good thing. I'm not saying it didn't need to be brought to light. But
1: I, is it really this? No, I do you know, yeah. Is it really? <laughs> well, and I think so I, again, so I, I went back and forth on this because I mostly my thought is like, no, of course not. Even if all the facts are correct. I mean, I think history has borne out that that. Yeah, that well, even even the so the biggest claim, right, is that if he proves espionage from these various high level um, officials, he talks about that they're placed in the government to affect policy. Right. Which I think yeah. is. Yeah, that's a big deal. And I think our current conversations and some of the current, frankly, hysteria about the collusion with Trump and Russia, like um, I'll go on record as saying, yeah, I'll bravely will say I don't like Trump. <laughs> I'm, one the, I'm one of the few Internet citizens who's against him. <laughs> um, but I do, you know, I think some of the ways in which the Russian collusion has been blown out of proportion, even if it is a huge deal, it, it actually reminds me of this, where it's like, OK, Alger Hiss is affecting policy he is maybe doing it as a soviet agent but at some point like it's a it's an external explicit thing right so like it's hard because other people are reading this and approving it or not approving it right like he's not actually stealing like you said nuclear codes and so it's not that he shouldn't be kicked out of government or whatever like there's not there shouldn't be consequences but it is hard for me to see that like the implications go as far as chambers wants them to on the other hand This is a time, like you just said, where the Soviet Union is supposedly an ally. Um, This is before, of course, you know, the Cold War is kicked into gear. That he is dealing with Alger Hiss, and that Alger Hiss is doing stuff on behalf of the Soviet Union, supposedly yada yada yada. And I think his great argument in the heart of the Cold War is that we have the great enemy to deal with to come, and no one wants to view them as an enemy. And it actually reminded me of something that a, a family member said, who is. Um, in the government and actually works with russia which is like that russia fundamentally still views us as the enemy every time an election goes wrong every time something goes haywire the citizens literally say that's america again destroying our country and so there's a way in which i feel like i kind of feel on i i feel most of the way i, I articulated it in the first hand i feel mostly like he has blown this way out of proportion on the other hand i feel like there's an at least an empathetic part or part of me that's trying to be benefit of the dowdy, which is like, I, I, I mean, maybe in the moment before the cold war has already been quote unquote fought and finished before, you know, what's going to happen before Korea has not escalated to a third world war, which it might've right. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe some of this makes more sense to me, you know, that, that you're looking at it, The greatest enemy America might have, and we both have nuclear weapons and they end that american people won't admit that they want to destroy america not just coexist with america right that's his whole argument and so i don't know i find so he's, yeah go ahead sorry i just you know he, he always wants to phrase the
0: battle as a as an ideological battle though right like he's uh, yes, not yeah. really worried that the the soviets are going to nuke us to death right like that's no, that's I, not really I, his yeah. no I i no <laughs> i i agree i totally
1: well that's why i keep coming back to like that's what's hard cuz i feel like that's my best argument for him, but I'm not sure I'm not sure I can ever buy it because of how he himself talks about the conflict, like you just said, and also because of how he frames stuff like so you and I both noted that he sort of elides the difference between literal Soviet communism and maybe socialism, which is especially weird to me because he talks about at one point that he believed that the the new deal would just be like right a transfer of power from business to government, like you said, and that it would kind of ape um, a lot of the economic and labor practices that Scandinavia or Britain have, which, by the way, is a crazy parallel with this very current yeah. moment of the democratic debates. And he says, you know, what I, th- I thought it was just that. I thought it was just policy that was going to bring us in line with, with other, other Western democracies, but now I don't. <laughs> now I'm sure that it's a gateway drug to communism. Hard stop. It will lead us to Stalin, no doubt. And I and that and that. So like when he wades into the actual like practical fears of his position? He totally loses me because he's wrong. I mean, I think he's actually wrong about that. I think the new deal was exactly what he first thought it was, which was an adjustment of labor and economic policies that did maybe transfer some of the power from the market to the government. But like that's that's still like why is it not that anymore? He never gives a reason. He just talks about you know, he had an epiphany, and the epiphany included this sort of carte, carte blanche, you know, um, rejection of anything left. So, sorry, so, but, but, but his, his lack of prognostication in practical terms undermines how much faith, I, you know, how much benefit of the doubt I can give him when he says, This is the ultimate battle. And it's like, okay, your language is already turning me off. Now your ideas are turning me off, too. Hey, so I'm going to
0: change the subject entirely here uh, because we have to do the thing where Bill notices something in this book that is also like something in some other book and doesn't really have any there there, but just has to point that out. Um, I just read (laughs) The City in the City by China Meville recently, um, which is a book that is bonkers and I like it very much, uh, which just in brief, it's a a book about a... At first, you think it's magic, and I actually am pretty sure it's not, (laughs) but there's a city which lives is built sort of contemporaneously with another city so there's two cities that occupy the same space like they're bounded by the same space but they're separate cities you're not supposed to recognize that anybody who is in the one city is also in the other city and so the people have developed these massive psychological defense mechanisms right to go through the town and to only notice the people who are in the city they're in not the city they're not in to be clear, you can go between one city and the other, but rather than walking two doors down, you have to go all the way through like central immigration and back out again. Right. So there's this whole cool process that you're learning about about unseeing things. He talks about this all the time, the, the narrator. He unsees somebody who walks down the street towards him. He unsees the buildings in the other city. And uh, it's, it's such a fascinating, I don't know, such a fascinating thing. It's a great book. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Whitaker Chambers talks about unseeing things in so many words. Uh, When he's talking about working for the underground, they have a couple of buildings and houses and stuff where they have to meet to drop off one of their briefcases full of film or, you know, do something along those lines. And, he consciously doesn't tries not to remember where these houses are, right? He just gets in a taxi with somebody. They drop them off there. He hands off the briefcase and then he leaves and he tries not to look at identifying street signs. And he tries as much as possible to unsee the things. I like think he says not see, and I think he, I think he literally says unsee at one point. Um, and I just thought a, what a fun connection, but B it's one reasons why it's the city and the city. I think works. It's obviously exaggerated, but it's based on, i think some real psychological stuff and it's also got kind of an eastern european vibe and here is a communist spy also unseeing things so that's again that's really i don't really have a thesis there other than that's a fun thing i noticed but that's a fun thing i noticed
1: well first of all the city and city is a great book and i'm glad that you read it i'm very excited for us to talk about it in our private life for the next ever um i will also say though what so you mentioned sort of their um there's spy techniques, right? That one of the spy techniques is as basic as he tries not to remember where he went. Um, and I did find that part of the story, just like the story of his own personal life with his brother and so forth. I found it really compelling basically because of how casual it all is. Right. The first thing is that, um, it was so much easier to drop off the grid in the 1930s or (laughs) twenties, you know, because there's not this digital trail where everyone can follow you. Um, but also he describes the process of like, there was, um, Part of the apparatus he's connected to, or one of the apparatuses he's connected to, they have people at the New York Public Library's genealogy center, right, so that they can find the yeah. names of infants who have died shortly after birth, so that they can read, you know, rejig those for uh, for communist uh, birth, you know, identities, right, <laughs> using their birth certificate and I thought all of that was not only obviously credible because that is what people do for fake identities, but also it was just fascinating with how casually was right. Like we met, I met, yeah, I met Colonel Beekoff and then I had, um, Ulrich who, by the way, sounds awesome. (laughs) Ulrich. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ulrich who was actually like, you know, in the Russian revolution and, you know, definitely killed people and stuff. Uh, but, um, but so no, I, I thought the unseen part was so great because it was such a quotidian detail that makes complete sense. And also it's such a crazy thing that like in the moment, he's just trying not to notice where he's going because if he does get arrested by the police one day, he has to uphold under questioning. You know what I, mean? I don't know. It was like it was a weird way of like, I have these very basic patterns I follow and I don't even necessarily talk about that. They're all because I'm subverting the gov- you know the government <laughs> of America. Um but mostly I I found his spycrafts really fascinating because it seemed so accurate and so casual. He just met with people, right? He went to outer his his house. How do you go to someone's house as a known communist? That was wild.
0: Um Yeah, or, or the way he is introduced to uh you know, whoever's going to be his next hand, he doesn't call him a handler and the exact uh, structure is confusing to me, and I think to Whitaker Chambers, which was on purpose. Like, it is it is deliberate. You never understand how your apparatus works unless you're at the very top, and even then probably you don't. Well, and you, um, and
1: you can be dropped, like, right? Everything depends on them contacting you, which includes you with your contacts. Yeah. Like, there's one guy who's late, and Chambers just drops him, right? Which makes sense, yeah. but the secrecy creates this very odd, like you said, confusion of how things actually work or get done. And,
0: you know, he, he first gets into that, like, he, there doesn't appear to be... Or at least none of the whatever background checks they did on him. We we don't ever see him knowing what that is, right? He just meets the official communists and then eventually starts to work for one of their newspapers, and then eventually is contacted by, you know, his boss, the newspaper, who says you got to meet this guy at this exact location and do whatever he tells you. And that guy says you are now going underground. You're never going back to that newspaper again. Have a good time. Right. And the whole time you just think, I could just schedule a meeting with one of these guys and give them gibberish
1: instructions and they'd never realize I wasn't actually <laughs> their boss. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which I think actually what's crazy is I think that's actually how counter espionage works. Right. Like you, you just, you contact the person you think is spying on the country and you do the whole theatrics of, you know, you can't ask questions. You have to come with us, which is crazy. Right. It's a crazy game. It really is. Like John Carey calls it, you know, boys playing cowboys and Indians, and I, you get why he says that, right? Because it's this crazy gamesmanship of, you know, make-believe.
0: And, and the other thing it did, on the subject of other books, is make me feel like the man who was Thursday was closer to real life than I thought it was, right? Oh my which gosh, yes! <laughs> One of the books we read earlier in this year for a small read, the G.K. Chesterton book, which, without going back through it, involves a bunch of spies who are you know, a bunch of sort of secret anarchist agents who turn out to all actually be secret agents trying to investigate the spies or the anarchists. Uh, And it sort of felt like that's more plausible to me now. If this is really how, you know, 20 or 30 years after that, this is how actual spies are based. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: no, it was, it was eerily reminiscent of the anarchy circle, but right down to like, you have the open communist party as a front that disguises the real communist party. I was like, that didn't isn't this from a novel i read this this is a book i just read um so yeah i love that i do yeah do you have anything else on that front or you okay if we pivot
0: that's the only thing i have on that front i have one very small other thing which is just at one point one of his bosses mistakes him for the son of uh Robert W. Chambers the novelist which I I think is really funny because Robert W. Chambers at the time mostly wrote trash romance novels like he wrote something like 120 novels of which 119 of them no one's ever going to read again and he also wrote The King in Yellow Right, no, yeah
1: I didn't even it's so crazy, I remember sorry, I remembered that but I didn't even think about the fact that like the the connection to your life, to be honest.
0: You know, The King in Yellow is a foundational weird fiction text. It's a group of 12 or something like that, short stories of which most are nothing, and a few of which are just foundationally important in that whole genre of thinking. And I just, what a funny thing to think about is, it's just, you're different, like, the people, the pulp writers are at the same time that all of, like, Chambers' spying is happening. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's great sometimes to think about the different ways time works together. Like, that's silly, but I just... I don't know. Well, and uh,
1: it also, you know, you mentioning Chambers, the author of King and Yellow, is a good reminder that I like to always say in this podcast, which, you know, Bill, you only you only have to have one hit, you know? You just have to have one. <laughs> you can write as many bad books as you want, but if you write one lasting book, it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> the thing I think is funny, I have a, just a cheap copy of The King and Yellow, but it's got an intro from, I think, the 80s. And the guy's like, I am the Robert W. Chambers scholar. That's me. I'm it. I've read, (laughs) you know, some significant chunk of what he wrote. Most of it is garbage. Some of it is fine. Some of it is vaguely useful for like societal, like this is what people were reading at the time. None of it is worth reading on its own, but people will keep reading The King in Yellow as long as people read scary short stories. You know what I mean? Like it's it's such a weird, and the thing is he wrote The King in Yellow early. That's one of the things I hadn't realized until I looked him up right now. Um, He was still writing until I think the 30s. And he wrote The King in Yellow in like 1898 or something like that.
1: Whoa. So he wrote
0: this foundationally important book, one or two other weird fiction short story collections, and then 30 years of garbage.
1: <laughs> you got you to gotta make money, Bill. You know, got to pay the bills. Hey, you know, fair enough. But I, I do, anyway, um,
0: that's a funny aside.
1: No, well, on the topic of literature, we called, you know, well, I, I actually quoted someone who called Chambers a and essentially you know he's a pure creature of literature um and I, I part of that includes that um his entry into the communist party i think is definitely aided by the fact that he speaks at least very good german if not a couple other languages well enough to get by um and that part of part of part of that ability to speak and read other languages is that he translates Bambi. (laughs) Yes, that's right. He translated Bambi. He translates Bambi (laughs) and makes possible the most terrifying animation sequence of my childhood, which involves, you know, like the dream stag fighting the other stag and the end of Bambi, which is a crazy, crazy sequence. I have not seen since I was five, but I kind of remember. And, uh, what's even wilder is that Bambi was out, It had been made by the time this book was written, (laughs) the movie, I mean. Um, So he is directly responsible for Walt Disney making that movie, basically. (laughs) And he knew about it, which just for some reason blew my mind because I have also seen Bambi. And yet I am not from the 1950s. Um.
0: Yeah, no, I I know what you mean, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, Rebecca West shows up
0: briefly. He references Rebecca West at one point and Rebecca West had written a long review of this book which i tried to find and couldn't i couldn't I find know. it either
1: yeah i couldn't find that.
0: um but you know rebecca west who wrote black lamb and gray falcon which is uh the big book we finished last year's group of podcasts with and that you know i would say Will it's say it's, from it's like four months
1: top of the big book rankings what i would say
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i i think it's still still probably the tippity top there So anyway, that's obviously just hey, it's everything's connected. People aren't, in fact, just individual monads floating through space. But it's still funny the way these work.
1: (laughs) I actually, so I'm pretty sure his wife and Rebecca West were friends. Actually, is what I read. I think on her Wikipedia page that. um, Oh no, kidding. Yeah, yeah, they actually they knew each other as like young pacifist leaning people. Because his wife was never a communist. She was like a Christian pacifist of, of a certain type. Um, but I just, I, but I do think his life is interesting. I mean, like without this crazy, his trial, I mean, he saw Long Island change from country to the suburbs and that's basically what the book Brooklyn is about or the movie, if you've seen it with, um, Saoirse Ronan. Um, he laid i haven 't yeah okay well it 's fine it 's a good movie, but but, but you know but it 's this essential transition of the American scene right from country to city um he laid rails in d c he bums around New Orleans, and he, you know, like, he right he like borrows or buys a second hand World War I uniform because he 's of course bumming around with soldiers from the first war, which of course informs everyone's opinion more than I ever want to admit, because every time I read someone from the interwar period, all they talk about is when the next war is going to happen, right? Like, they all know it's coming for 10 or 12 years. Um, He spies for the Soviet Union. He hides from them, including buying a gun and chasing off hoodlums somewhere in the south. I think it was Florida, but I forgot um and then he wrote for time and actually he wrote for time with james aggie or i think it's his name who wrote let us now praise famous men that's like a that's like a Forrest gumpian level of things to do in a pretty short lifespan because he dies young he's like 60 or something i
0: think Um, i think he's exactly 60 yeah Yeah.
1: and again seventh heart attack so watch what you eat kids you know it always catches up um well and don't you know
0: Don't stay awake for 36 (laughs) hours by smoking three packs, packs of cigarettes and drinking. I mean, it's just, yeah, you read it like, yeah, I mean. No wonder your heart exploded. Like, I'm very sorry, but like, man, you
1: can't do this. <laughs> you really can't do this. No, it reminded me of, I mean, I think I told you this at one point. I wish I had the quote in front of me that like um, Balzac thought that he had literally found the key to like genius, which was that he had like 40 cups of coffee a day and he made it in a special way that essentially rendered it cocaine. <laughs> and then he died, at, like, he died at like 42 or something. No, not quite that young, but he died really young and it was clearly from the alcohol or the alcohol I wish the coffee um I can't remember how young he was but um yeah yeah he was like yeah he was pretty young he was like 51 um but so yeah I definitely had flashbacks to that anecdote when Chambers talks about when I was at time yeah we would work 36 hours straight just to get all the work done I was like you guys gotta hire someone else your time you can't hire an intern to do a little of the work it's crazy
0: well, but, he, you know, he thinks that he's he's the only one he can bear to give some of this writing to because it's the single most important. You know, he's fighting the fight against communism. It's true. This That's is actually, true.
1: No, it, is, it, yeah, it's true. It's
0: just him and this one other guy that he's the only one on time, basically, who realizes that communism is evil. And so, by God, he's going to edit all of the foreign news and he's going to make sure it's clear to every reader of time that communism is evil. And, you know, <laughs> I do. think I, uh, Go ahead. I just, I can't believe nobody else on, on staff could have helped you with this project. But also, you know, again, his whole life is is a big fight against the enemy. It's it is. a big fight against the forces of, I don't know, imperialism or capitalism, and then it's a big fight against communism, and then he dies. Um, and so it makes me believe his self-aggrandizing stuff that it isn't put on, that it is how he thought of himself and what he thought he was doing. Do you know what I mean?
1: Totally. No, I, I think, yeah. No, I... I... I think that's who he is through and through and um i think interestingly enough uh it it comes up partly like like we've talked about through self-aggrandizing but it's what handicaps him too right because like there's the one the one self-aggrandizing story i was going to get in there at one point was um the editor at time compares him to um a character in the gospel of john who's blind and the pharisees come and they're like hey i want to I want to, you know, trick you up, Jesus. Like, why is this guy blind? Was it the sins of his parents or his own sins? And Jesus eschews the answer, eschews the frame of the question, and says, um, "He's blind for the, you know, for this moment, for the glory of God." And the, you know, the publisher of Time, I should that. The publisher of Time says, "You know, you're the blind boy. You're the, you're, you know, basically, you're going to go through all this crap <laughs> for the glory of God." And my first reaction was, "I roll." Because why would you? If someone told you that, why would you ever print that? You know what I mean? Like, um, like there's got to be some kind (laughs) (laughs) of filter. (laughs) But second of all, like that was actually that was one of the few self-aggrandizing moments that felt at least a little more accurate and maybe cast some light on like being Jonah, because like Jonah and the blind guy, like they're all like like you know they all have to basically be a not forgiven but like that like he calls himself like he's born blind right he has this defect that has to be fixed which is that he can't help but overdo it when it comes to communism same thing with jonah right jonah disobeys god and gets thrown in the belly of the whale he really thinks that he deserves this you know that he deserves some sort of suffering um even as he keeps casting it in the most self-aggrandizing terms which is still mostly what i get what i take from it but i just feel like to be there's so many ways that he could have just adjusted the dial and made the point almost poetically do you know what i mean uh if he could have just yeah no i'm yeah
0: i definitely think as a as a piece of writing he could have communicated the same ideas in a way that made it a little more credible a little less bombastic but you know i think that's the you know his other great hero is the russian uh Revolutionary who was you know in the prison camp and is they were oh, flogging yeah. his friends and so he chooses to protest it by self immolating like that's his other great hero that he comes back to a couple <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name <laughs> I uh, you know it's he's just such a self destructive um, way of living which again when you look at his his own account of his childhood of course he's self destructive everyone else he knows is also self destructive yeah. you know his 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 brother kills himself basically just out of a you know clearly clearly it's a very serious depression I mean but it's, it's not. There's no one thing in his life you can hook to. It's just he went to college and read a bunch of depressing stuff, and clearly got again a, a serious mental, you know, mental illness. Clearly, and killed himself from it. His father basically does that. His grandfather basically drinks himself to death. He, you know, he, he just has this self-destructive tendency that is just. It's why he works 36 straight hours. It's why he doesn't handle some of the Huac stuff in a way that might have made things easier for him, while still making the point he thinks he has to. He's he's self-destructive, but he's cast it as self-sacrifice, right? Yes, yes. He's found a way to make that a a good thing, a martyrdom almost, as opposed to just like a death wish. I think
1: that's exactly exactly the problem with how he's casting it, I think, is that he is self-destructive, but insists on it being a self-sacrifice. And not that he isn't self-sacrificial, but there's definitely a way in which he is normalizing or at least maybe um, mythologizing his own pathology.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And that's obviously a lot of armchair psychology, but he really invites it because this is what the book is, particularly the, you know, all the stuff, which is about him, what happened in his life and how he was feeling really invites you to look at him and be like, well, what was going on to make him feel this way?
1: It does, well, you know? and, yeah, and, what, and, and the last thing I would say is that and as far as comparisons of other books, what I kept thinking about in regards to like how he keeps overstating his case, I kept thinking about the book by Solzhenitsyn, um, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, Um, which I thought of partly because Solzhenitsyn is maybe the author who actually did disrupt the Soviet Union with his book, right? The Gulag Archipelago, the Russians talk about it as like, yeah, it's, I mean, it didn't like bring down, you know, the wall, but basically, right? It, it kind of exposes everything, and it's the illicit copy everyone reads, yada, yada, yada. But the, his smaller book, which is also great, um, One Day in the Life of Yom Denisovich, it's about this guy a normal guy who's just in a camp in Siberia. And, of course, the book is a rhetorical argument, or a rhetorical device. The whole narrative is a rhetorical device to show you how bad the camps are. What's crazy is that Solzhenitsyn chooses a really good day that Yvonne is having one of the better days where he like sort of enjoys the work he does and gets a little food at breakfast, but that the, 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 the camp by default is so horrible. The weather is so destructive. The guards are so cruel. The life is so bleak that the moral picture is clearer than ever. When the book ends by just giving um, the math on how many days left he has. And it's, it, it does the work, for you, completely. It's amazing, because the moral math is actually almost literally math, that with sort of these um, elements of life in place, of course this isn't moral. And I feel like actually, um, even if I don't agree with maybe the stuff he presented sometimes, I feel like Chambers had the same material in his hands, right? He could have just put the material forward and said, here is here is the one plus two plus three plus four plus six, you know, whatever, you can fill in the answer yourself because it's so clear from the math that I've laid out in front of you. And he just doesn't do that. He just can't help himself. Cause I think he has that literature bug that he wants to cast it in essentially literary terms when really the more literary thing would have been to let the narrative speak for itself. But he was caught up in the news cycle. You know, I mean, I, you know, he's responding to, to the moment and not just, you know, to the story. So anyway, yeah, I mean, that's, this is what
0: three years after, two years after the his histri- three years after the his trial, you know this is this is the, in addition to being his personal memoir and a you know and I think an interesting literary work. Again, we, we've been kind of talking crap about it because I think it fails in the end in some big ways. But it's a really interesting read. It like, really he, is. Again, he can on a on a sentence by sentence level, he's dynamite. And again, really that first half is really something. Um, and I think big chunks of the second half are really great too. Like I don't want to no. Imply it's true. That it's just well, a cliff, and, but
1: and at the moment he's writing. Not only is it red hot the public opinion is still against him right like he, yeah. he is still very much the person that everyone the the average joe definitely the dem- average democrat is going to demonize him not just for that time where he is alive the next 10 years but for the rest of <laughs> the book's history right like this book is yeah. still controversial as far as you know uh, whether or not like you said at the beginning of our podcast you agree with his take on things um, but I agree. I think, I mean, I, I feel like we have uh, landed some punches, however coherently or not. Uh, I have a new baby in the house, so I apologize to everyone at home. Um, but I do think despite all the punches, we have both landed in light, not only of our personal preferences and also in some actual, you know, we think we've identified actual defects. I, I ripped through this book. I mean, I, I had to read it in the middle of a lot of stuff in my life. And definitely, the first half has so much momentum that, um, some of the slogs of the second half, I I really read it pretty fast for being a, my copy is like, you know, over 700 pages. And I I really, almost like a thriller, I blew through it. um, Relatively speaking to me having two children under two. Um, So I don't know. So I, and I, I agree with you that I, I think part of my frustration is that the stuff of literature is in this book to be kind of highfalutin in terms that he would respect. He has written what is essentially a literary account of his purpose in life. And it's just, I think it's too bad that like the end sort of unravels a lot of the good work he does before that, just like aesthetically speaking or, you know, narratively speaking.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. One of the the things I was going to say is this book, in addition to being his memoir and his sort of manifesto is also like one of those books that every single person in politics now writes about a year after they get kicked out of the Trump administration or whatever. You know what I mean? That's (laughs) true. every, (laughs) every single person and you know james i think james comey wrote a book i like everybody's going to write a book right now this book is also that like that's the thing one of the reasons i think it's such wow. an odd yeah. book is because it's it's one of those po- you know relevant political bestsellers that everyone buys and nobody reads you know and that's why he spends so much time defending the specific specific things he says and like there's a big chunk of the the his case chapters which actually i found mostly interesting Same. are about him saying here's exactly why i hid you know, hid the stuff in the pumpkin, right? Which actually I found kind of confusing, but he hides some microfilm in a pumpkin because he's going to go in and testify and he's worried they're going to like steal stuff from his house. But then like the next day they say, so do you have more stuff? And he says, yes. And goes back <laughs> and the the pumpkin. So I don't really understand the pumpkin, but there's, you know, he he's talking about, he, he, he initially wanted to only reveal that his and company were communists. He didn't want to reveal they were engaged in espionage. He says because he wanted to sort of fight communism without harming his friends, basically, right? Right. And he said if it was revealed they were communists, they'd certainly be in trouble, and this would be a problem. But they wouldn't necessarily be in jail the way they are. So he, there's a portion of his testimony when he's trying to hold stuff back without actually lying, and he actually does briefly does lie, lie yeah. to a grand jury. Uh, and, and it's like some of that is both interesting, just as a as a drama, but also you can see it's him trying to explain to all these people who think he's a liar why he did what he did, right? There's a, there's a strong defensive, well, look, the reason I said these things, which other people have accused me of, of making up, is because I forgot some stuff. It was 11 years ago, or whatever. Or it's because I was trying to do this other thing. Or right. Or it's, you know, and it's always it's always paired with, and here's the thing Alger Hiss said on the subject, which is even less credible, which at least from what he cited, you know, and I haven't read, of course, the whole record, and I'm not gonna, but like, he paints a pretty compelling picture in Hiss's own words of mm-hmm. why Hiss was clearly lying and squirreling his way out of stuff, which again, I guess there's still some debate. I think most people agree that at this point, the evidence suggests that his was lying. I guess I don't know. I mean, that's-
1: from what I, I've read again, it seems pretty settled, but, um, I think I would add to that. Maybe the trap he falls into with his defensive stance is of course, he's trying to make all of his actions really coherent, right? I mean, I'm not sure he ever makes them sound coherent, but, but that's the whole problem, right? Is that he's in the middle of this, literally exhausting physically trial, right? It's like an exhausting experience to go through just physically. Um, and it's also, of course, I mean, in the heat of the moment, this sort of emotional veil between yourself and your words happens. Like I actually, so I had this really, I'll, I'll show this anecdote, which maybe we'll cut. I had this really weird um, training I had to go to as a city employee And it was run by a police officer, and I I had my notebook open, and um, I was like doodling, ready to make notes. And the guy who – we cleared it up, but like he was an older guy, a police officer. He slapped my notebook shut without saying anything because I was doodling. And we had this crazy (laughs) – yeah, we we had this crazy exchange where I said, not appropriate. And he was really surprised that I challenged him. And we talked about it afterward. And I tried to tell him, I was like, you know, in this moment, you're not an off, like, you know, you're you're not, like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not under your command. Like you're giving a training to another city employee. Like you can't knock my stuff out of my hands. And we kind of disagreed, obviously. Um, But what I remember most is that like my coherence, even my motivation just like fled from my mind, right? Basically fight or flight. But the things I actually did make sense in retrospect, but honestly, if I was to kind of give you a step-by-step accounting of my thinking in that emotional moment, I would be exaggerating. I would 100% exaggerate any explanation I gave, not on purpose, but because there's no way I can capture the cocktail of adrenaline and emotion and, you know, fear or whatever for that, like, little nothing moment, right? Whereas... chambers (laughs) is going before congressmen and going before grand juries and getting eviscerated in the press and upsetting his whole life and it feels like he is caught in the trap of trying to rationalize something that is at least partly essentially irrational and i think he should have just you know given part of that up even though I, i as you're saying he was you know he was in defense mode but um i think part of the problem is that a lot of his actions probably were Incoherent at the time he made them, not just as retrospective explanations.
0: All right. Well, I think we've pretty much exhausted what we're going to say about witness, I think, for today. Or we could just say variations on the same thing for another few more hours. Do you want to do that? Should we do that? I have time.
1: <clears throat> I mean, I i don't, but yeah. I, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: we'll, probably, we'll probably. I mean, we uh, might after are... this podcast is
1: done.
0: <laughs> we actually might. Yeah, that's great. We'll, <laughs> we'll quit subjecting you, dear listener, to yeah. our sort of uh, punt. Anyway. Uh, I'm really glad I read this book. I, I've been a little harsh to it, but I, uh, which I, I guess it's two two in a row that I I have said mean things to. Maybe I'm becoming the podcast uh, cynic. Although I don't think you like this one either. Um, no. <laughs> maybe that's, we're working on our we're, we're working on our, our Siskel and Ebert sort of uh, you know rivalry here. It's going to be <laughs> no. Um, anyway, the uh, I, I really enjoyed reading this book, and I do think it's very much worth reading. Um, I think it has uh, relevance today. You know, I think the issues it articulates are still relevant, both in terms of specifically what it thinks it's identifying and in terms of the way it approaches some of these questions. I think it's still a common way people approach questions today. How's that? Is that? that I think sense? that's
1: totally right. Yeah, no, I think a lot of I think a lot of current conservative intellectualizing, if not branches out from chambers is by a couple layers removed, completely influenced by his approach to these things. Yeah, I think, that's,
0: I think that's right. But uh, we're going to move on to some other stuff now. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll talk about what our December big read is going to be first. So Joel, I think, earlier referred to our Russian trilogy, where we did Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia. We did uh, Witness. And we're going to go ahead and do one of the sort of er big reads now. We're going to go ahead and do War and Peace mm-hmm. uh, in December. So I'm actually really excited. Um, I have not read any significant amount of Tolstoy before. Joel, you've read Anna Karenina, and I think are on record saying it might be the perfect novel. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, no, it, I mean, yeah, if I had to choose one, I would say Anna Karenina. And I, and I will add, so I've, I've actually, I've read a lot of Tolstoy. Um, I've read a lot of him except for this one. And I was going to read this one a couple years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, when you and I started this podcast, it was like on my shelf to read. And I, I actually held off because I was like, we, I need to, whether podcast happened or not, I was like, Bill and I will have to talk about this book. So I just want to point out that, like, I mean, I love Tolstoy, and I am very excited for this one. And if it, you don't like it, you cannot tell me. <laughs> 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 I'm just, well, I, expect I'm just <laughs> I mean, I, I I've liked...
0: Uh, I have I have a certain fondness for large Russian novels. I, I like all the Dostoevsky I've read and I grant that they're very different writers really, but you, I think they have some yeah sort of no, have there's, to, I don't yeah, know yeah. I haven't read any Tolstoy. But. Anyway, I know what you mean though about a, a big book you want to read and then saving it for the podcast. I, I had bought a copy of Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney a while back and I was like, well, should I actually read this or should I try to make <laughs> Joel read this for the podcast It's <laughs> long enough. I did decide to go ahead and read it and I'm, I think it was the right call. I think it would be hard to talk about in the podcast. That book is Bonkers. yeah. Um, it's Bonkers parts of it are brilliant it's bonkers there's a <laughs> lot of weird sex in it there's just a lot of weird sex in it like 150 pages we are like i get it you're working through some kinks and that's fine but can when we was move it on, when please? was it written again
1: what, what 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 decade was it written in
0: oh i think it's the early 70s so, uh, let me look
1: no it's okay i was because i just uh, i know you know i had a text exchange about like sci-fi for certain decades and maybe currently just can't help but like get the weird sex in there whenever it can and that i i'm reading i'm finishing up the dispossessed right now by le guin which is great really good book um, and she doesn't have any weird sex in it but it, I I feel like it was like written into the contracts that like no one in a sci-fi book who has sex can have sex once in that initial encounter. <laughs> like no uh, no time <laughs> is like hey we went to bed together and then we had sex two more times that same night. Like every time I come across yeah. it it's like well the first time was great but the second time that same night was even better. Like what like how did you guys all agree? Like is this cuz of the sexual revolution? Like what prompted this consensus of multiple uh, intercourse in one night every single time. I mean, I don't want to tell too much about my own life, yeah. but come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a big part of, yeah, Dahlgren is like, that. Dahlgren is 1975, and yeah, they'll just be, you know, he goes back and he hangs out with his two buddies, you know, he's got this gal, he's kind of hit her boyfriend, and then he's got this younger Man, that he's kind of in love with too, and they just they'll they'll just party around for a while, again and again and again. And I'm like, all right, this is <laughs> literally 40 pages, Sam. Like, I appreciate that you're breaking a lot of boundaries here. I'm not saying you can't do this sort of thing. It's just a lot of it, man. Yeah. Like I get it.
1: <laughs> Everything becomes tiresome after too long.
0: In a, in a lot of ways, it's a really brilliant book, though. It'll definitely stick with me. Um, I have a real thing for magical lawless cities, and uh, Bologna <laughs> in Dahlgren is is one of the important ones. So. Anyway, my point is, we're not going to do that for the big read. Uh, we are going to do more science fiction, though. That, well, how about that transition? That was good. That, good. that was really good, Bill. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are going to do some more sci-fi first, though. Um, so we're going to do War and Peace in December, but we're going to do a special October big read. Um, we're going to read Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, and we're going to have a guest on the podcast, a friend of the podcast and friend of both of us as people. Our friend Jared Hammond is going to join... Probably both of us, maybe just me. We're still working on the details on that. That's a sort of logistical issue. Uh, but we're going to have a special Halloween-ish... It's not a horror book. It's just when it ended up happening. But it's fun <laughs> to pretend it's related. Yeah, uh, We're going to do Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein next month. And we're going to do the like director's cut version, the uncut version of it, which came out um, oh ways back. But not the original paperback version. Uh, so if you do choose to follow along with us sometime in October... Uh, There will be a Big Read episode about Stranger in a Strange Land, and then in December we're doing War and Peace, and specifically we're doing the Richard Pevier and Larissa Volokonsky uh, translation, which is relatively recent and that Joel can talk about maybe, but I...
1: I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I I got nothing to add to that. I will I will add. You kind of alluded to it, and uh, you Jared and I were kind of you know texting about it basically that um, this will be the second year in a row we've done like a very like classic genre read for Halloween, and I just I I feel like a tradition is brewing. You know, the Halloween big read genre book can become a a thing we do first with the ha- haunting of Hill House, Stranger in a Strange Land. You know, just people who listen to this. Don't forget for, for one year from now <laughs> to remind us <laughs> to do another genre read. I like it. It's a good tradition.
0: Yeah. N- that'll be a pattern instead of just random statistical noise, which is what we have right now. I was looking at our list of podcast episodes the other day. We have no sense of structure at all. It's, it's great. Not... I love it. <laughs> About every three months we do a podcast. We do a lot of others in between. We
1: need a producer. Um, <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think it's been fun. So anyway, thanks for listening to our podcast on witness. And again, we're doing stranger in a strange land next month and war and peace in December. And I have one other the thing I'm trying to get Joel to do, but he's busy with his family. Or whatever. I don't
1: know. I mean. They're so demanding. Um, I will say, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, I will say, yeah, the, uh, the new kid is sleeping pretty well. So um, I read most of this book when I was putting into bed at night and there are definitely some sections. I don't remember. <laughs> that's fair
0: <laughs> all right well i think that's all i have unless you have anything else in particular
1: no man that's good um thanks as always for doing this this is i'm really glad i read this book i mean i'm glad we i, mean, I it wouldn't as always it wouldn't be as meaningful if i just read it and like buried it somewhere deep inside my you know my psychosis <laughs> that i'm developing um so yeah thanks as always
0: yeah no it's a lot of fun i really uh i really enjoyed it and i enjoy this this show so yeah um we'll see you guys next time and uh Bye, Joel. Later, dude. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song, Water Song, for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.